Wall Street is full of corruption and it is baked in to every aspect of our society. MMT is a lens by which you assess all economic understanding at the macro level. In the 1900s, Lenin was predicting global finance capital would do all the things it's doing today. This was written over a hundred years ago. This is The Rogue Scholar with Steve Grumbine. All right, everybody, it is Steve, the Rogue Scholar, and today we're going to do a very remedial review of MMT, and I'm going to show you some great um, resources that I use to learn the basics of MMT. Hopefully you find some value in this. Um, you know, I've done this a bunch of different times over the course of years, many, many years, and I was, I'm not going to lie, I was shocked. I did a live stream, a late stream last night. Um, and somebody who had seen me over at status coup was like, I've never heard you actually tell us what MMT is. I sat back. I was like, wow. Okay. Seven years later, nobody's heard it. So I figured what the hell I'll go ahead and talk about what MMT is. And I'm going to keep it really light because we can convolute this thing an awful lot. We can make it you know, split hairs about a lot of little things that maybe as you get further into your journey, it'll matter. But right now it's not all that big a deal. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to describe what MMT is or modern monetary theory is. And then we're going to describe some of the resources that you can use to learn more about it. All right. So what is MMT? Modern monetary theory is a description of how Federal finance or, or economics, macroeconomics has worked in a free-floating fiat currency, or more importantly, just simply a fiat currency. And it describes the um, fiat currency as a currency or unit of measure that is issued by decree by the state. Um, now, there's newer versions. People are trying to make a lot of new waves in terms of not focusing on the state, but the state is key to driving an understanding of modern monetary theory. And it talks specifically about who issues the currency, who's responsible for the currency, what currency even is, how it gets spent into the economy, and how it gets taken out of the economy, how it gets deleted, right? And so the way I like to think of MMT, and I'm gonna be very America-centric temporarily, because you can take the Australian dollar and turn it into a, a discussion about Australia. You can do it with Japan. You can do it with Canada. You can do it with the UK. You can do it with just about every country in the world that issues its own currency. Okay. But in the United States in particular, Congress has been given the power of the purse in our Constitution. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution gives Congress the power to tax and to spend. It's a very simple thing. Article 1, Section 8 gives Congress the authority to tax and spend. Article 1, Section 10 forbids the states from issuing currency. Okay? So leaves solely in the hands of the federal government. Article 1, Section 8 gives Congress the power of the purse. Article 1, Section 10 
specifically states that states cannot issue currency. Pretty simple stuff right there, okay? So what does that mean? Well, oftentimes you hear people talking about, well, MMT just is about printing money. And, and it's not that at all. In fact, MMT is just merely like, pretend like you're Encyclopedia Brown or you're Sherlock Holmes and you've got your magnifying glass on, you've got your looking, you're looking around, you're tracing out how things happen. And what MMT does, it's a hyper accurate description of the way that that plumbing works, the steps in the process of money creation and how it gets out to the public. I think it's really important that we not make it more than it is and we not make it less than it is. It is an accurate description of exactly step-by-step how money works. And for me, this was a real challenge because I came from a very, very different school of thought. I came from more of a Ron Paul, uh, MBA kind of school of thought, Von Mises. Didn't really understand what I was talking about. I was under the impression that the government borrowed money from banks to spend and our tax dollars were required for the government to have money to spend. And when the government spent beyond its means that somehow or another it was bankrupting my children and all these things, these are all things that I thought and believed for forever, right? Forever, I believed that. And when I went to grad school, I even believed it because that was basically what was taught there as well. So after I got my master of science degree and I got my master of business administration, I thought I was king shit on a, on a platter. And, and so it was very hard for me to understand what happened during the global financial crisis. It was very hard for me to understand because none of the stuff that I was taught measured up to any of the stuff that we were, you know, that we were seeing the reality of, of money didn't match up. I didn't understand. I kept thinking when you print money, you create inflation, all this stuff. So I had a lot of questions. I had a lot of questions. And a gentleman named Bruce Patrick taught me that money or currency, that dollar that you and I are used to holding in our hands is a representation of a unit of account. Now, I want you to understand unit of account just means like an inch or a pound, some a degree. Um, it, it's a unit of measure. Okay. So the dollar is a unit of measure and it represents what we'll call tax credits. Okay. So the government issues these tax credits into the economy, but it doesn't just willy nilly print them out and then put them on some, you know, pallet somewhere to be used at a later date. No, the government, when they receive a bill from Congress, they are given instructions. The bill says, hey, we're going to spend $5 million on XYZ thing. So we need to credit the treasury's account X number of trillions of dollars or billions of dollars or whatever the bill calls for. And then this interesting tool, this is a strange tool at the Fed. The strange tool at the Fed gets put into operation and they mark accounts up and they mark accounts down. They mark accounts up when spending is about to occur, okay? So this right here is all it is. That money wasn't dug out of the ground. It wasn't uh, gold. It wasn't sexual favors. It wasn't chicken necks, and it wasn't tax dollars. When they say spend money, Congress gets this to the Fed through the bill. The Fed keys those things into the Treasury's accounts. And then the treasury 
spends them on whoever the bill said to spend them on. So whatever bills Congress has authorized to spend, that money is put into their account. And that's it. That's, that's all there is to that. Now, the funny thing is this. April 15th comes around. You've got to pay your taxes. You send in your, your uh, tax returns, your, your, your statement, your, your tax return. And it tells you how much you owe or how much you get back or whatever. Let's just say you owe money. You send a check of U.S. dollars, not Bitcoin, not gold bars, nothing else. It's got to be U.S. dollars. And you send that back. And you know what they do with your tax dollar? You probably think, and this is a simplified version, you probably think that those tax dollars go into some bank account and just sit there and wait to be spent on another bill someday later and that the government could run out of money. But that's not true. Okay, what happens when it's received by the IRS? It takes away reserves that were created in the banking system and deletes them. That money is functionally deleted. It's marked down in the account. There is no recycling of dollars. So think about this. Every time we pay federal taxes and that money is deleted, what, how do we get more money back into the economy? Well, it's, it's a couple of ways. Either A, the federal government spends that money into existence on specific things. Again, it never just prints it and stacks it in a corner for a rainy day so the government has money. That's not how it works. The government always spends new money into existence. And that includes Social Security payments as well. That includes military payments. That includes foreign military aid. That includes any of any spending that Congress authorizes is spent with new money every single time. That's it. 100% that's it. And every time you receives money back in tax, it deletes it every single time. Now, mind you, this is at the federal level. States operate differently, and we'll get to that in a minute. But at the federal government level, at the federal, at the nation state level, at the state where they are the currency issuer, those taxes are functionally deleted. They're gone. They don't exist anymore. So if you think about this, money is like a circuit in a sense. Money is spent into the economy. Money is taxed out of the economy. So if you tax more out of the economy than you spend, you end up in surplus. Okay, this is what they call a government surplus. But what happens if you have a government surplus? You've deleted more money from the economy. You've deleted more money from the economy than you put into it. It's not like sitting there for a rainy day. It's not like they'll just use that for some other thing. It's not like they'll suddenly save the poor because they have a surplus. No, they've literally made, that's called austerity. They've literally deleted money from the economy. They've actually shrunk the economy, okay? But what happens if they go ahead and they spend more than they tax? Well, that is called a deficit, and that's for a year. It's an annual measure. That's a year measure. There's no compounding deficits. The deficit is a one-year thing, and it's the amount taxed versus the amount spent into existence. That's it. So what's scary about a deficit? Absolutely nothing. Why is it used as a billy club across our heads for, to keep the poor down, to keep us from having a Green New Deal, keep us from having health care or whatever? Because neoliberalism, which is the flavor of the day, 
around the world, actually, demands privatization. It wants you and I to get money through different means. It does not want us getting services and money through the federal government. Why? Because it wants to provide that in the private sector. How do they do that? So I told you, spending money into the economy by the federal government was one way we get money into the economy. So imagine a bathtub. This is a bad analogy. I know some people have problems with it, but it works for me for the description here. You have a bathtub. You have money coming in from the federal government through one spigot. If they turn that spigot off because somebody's bragging about deficit reduction, no money coming in for their money's got to come in from somewhere, right? Well, it's got two other places that it can come. It can come from in, uh, exporting goods and services, so money coming in from outside the country, or primarily it can come from private banks, from bank loans, bank credit money. It's not the same thing as the federal government spending money into the economy. It's bank credit money. So when you think about this, you've got three ways of getting money in, bank credit, federal spending, or exports. That's it. Well, the United States has been a net importing country for a very, very long time. A net importing country to the tune of about 500 billion annually. So 500 billion is leaving the country, or so to speak, being parked at the Fed to facilitate trade. The people, China sells goods and services to the US. They typically will keep their US dollars that they wanna keep at the Fed. The rest of the money, they'll go out on the foreign exchange and swap it around for whatever currency they wish to save in. But they always maintain some US dollars to facilitate trade in the United States because they want access to a 350 billion person market that is vibrant. So they will go ahead and keep money at the Fed. Okay, this is interesting. What do they do with that money at the Fed? It just sits there? Well, typically what'll happen is they will buy bonds. Those bonds basically take money sort of out of circulation. It's not a great analogy because bonds are, are liquid as well, okay? But in this case, for the, for the sake of argument, they sell bonds and these bonds earn a nominal interest. You must buy the bonds with US dollars. You can't buy them with foreign currency. You can only buy bonds with US dollars. Well, where do US dollars come from again, folks? From the federal government. That's it, period. I know the Rothschild stories make you feel hot and spicy, but I'm here to tell you they come from your federal government. It's a, it's a unit of measure. That's it. It's a unit of measure. Don't get caught up in it. It's a very temporary thing. Dollars are spent into the economy constantly, and they're deleted from the economy constantly. All the time it happens. And so as you think about what I'm saying here, MMT gives us a lens to understand what is happening. So you see a lot of people put memes up about how I'm willing to pay more money for people to have health care. I'm willing to pay higher taxes so they can have health care. See, this is a missed shot. This is a, a false paradigm. It's a false paradigm. Ultimately, the government doesn't need your money. It creates the money every time it spends. What does it need taxes for? What are the purposes of taxes? Well, taxes do a number of things. Number one, they drive the need for currency. You've got to have that currency now because you've got to pay your taxes in it. 
There's also fines, fees, and penalties that we use in our court system, our policing, et cetera, that drive the need for that currency as well. So the obligations that are only payable in U.S. dollars are what gives it its value. It's not gold. It's not oil. It's not anything else. It's that. Because if you look, Australia has the same scenario. So does Japan. So does the U.K. Minor differences in terms of the rules that they put on it, but they're all man-made rules that could be changed instantly. Okay, they're just a lot of a lot of these things tend to be, uh, you know, this is just how we've always done them. A lot of these things also tend to be myths and legends they tell us to keep us disciplined because they don't want us thinking we could just spend money on anything, right? So they create a lot of things out there that MMT helps us understand are bullshit. Number one of those things is Milton Friedman's concept of quantity theory of money. Milton Friedman back in the 60s and 70s was leading a big coup d'etat on the economics of the world. He was the king of neoliberalism, and he advanced the idea of quantity theory of money, that when you print money, it creates inflation. And so this is what you hear from most people these days is, oh, they're just printing money and you're going to have hyperinflation. Haven't you ever heard of Venezuela? Haven't you ever heard of Argentina? What about Weimar? All this stuff. So they'd say these things, okay? But MMT helps us understand that that's not what it is, okay? MMT shows us a number of things. What is inflation? Inflation is typically brought on by abusive market power, monopolies, being able to price gouge, okay? Because as Warren Mosler would tell you, if you think this through logically, when the government spends money into the economy, it spends it somewhere first. Might be Northrop Grumman. It might be some other neocon outfit gearing up the war machine. But they get that first dollar. Very rarely do we, the people, get the privilege of receiving the first dollar when it's spent right out of the economy, right out of the government. It usually gets stepped on by several different players who take a cut of that money, if you will. And so this kind of preferential treatment, it, it creates a scenario where you see the initial wholesale value, if you will, of the dollar is when the government spends it that first time. And then as they peel away, strip away some profit from it and spend the rest of it on you and I, you can see how it starts stepping down the buying power of that unit of account. Okay. Now, MMT is a lot of other things. MMT describes foreign exchange. MMT describes, uh, you can kind of predict recessions and stuff like that using an accounting identity, ironically, called sectoral balances that measures those three things I talked about early on when I said how money gets in the economy. It looks at private debt. You and I, how much private debt can you and I take on or the states take on, okay? When you think about that, we have a certain limit of debt you and I can take on if our credit score is good, whatever. And that column of debt, when it gets to a certain point, it can't go any further because unless they relax credit rules, regular people will not be able to get that money. And so when you see them hiking up interest rates, that's class war right there. That is an attack on the poor. That's attack on me and you, but it's also free money basically for the wealthy. They've already invested. They've got their bonds. This is bank. They, they just keep getting more money. The interest rates pay more money to the wealthy. That's what's going on there. Okay. But you and I are the ones carrying the weight of that. 
So that's that's one. That's sectoral balance A, which is the private sector, private debt. Okay. Then there's sector two, which would be public debt, which would be the state of the U.S. economy, if you will, or the state of the Australian economy, government debt. Okay. And since governments never have to, well, shouldn't say this, government like the United States never has to take on foreign debt. We have our own currency. We are sovereign in energy. We're sovereign in food. We're sovereign in production. We're sovereign in just about everything. So our ability to issue debt is in our own currency. So it's not debt at all. We're paying ourselves basically. Okay. But then the last one is what we call rest of world. If you look at rest of world, this includes things like the balance of payments with, you know, are we a trade a net importer or are we a net exporter? That kind of thing. Okay. And so if you look at that, you look at the three things that you got a private debt, public debt, and rest of world. Rest of world, you can also include demand leakages like savings and offshoring and things like that. Things that take money effectively out of the economy, out of the working economy. So when you look at that, you see that the government spending in, and I think I actually have an image of this. I'm going to put it up here for you guys to see what I'm talking about. This right here is a sectoral balances look and feel. And you can see the top line up here is basically government spending. Domestic private sector is blue. And so everything in blue means that you and I, that's in our pocket. Hold on. Sneezing. Woo, sorry about that. And you see these red lines. That right there is the government's sector. That's the government's sector. Okay. And it looks like the government is dead broke. It's it's got all this red ink. But if you'll notice, they're a mirror of each other. So why is that? If you think about it, when the government spends money into the economy, on one side of the ledger, it tallies a, a, a liability. But on the other side, it tallies an asset. We tend to only look at the government side. And so we see deficit here, this red ink, and we go, oh my God, scary numbers, big numbers, terrifying. But what we don't do is look at the other side of the ledger, which is the private sector's savings and the net assets, the net financial assets in the economy. And that's what the other side is. So it's mirrors. So if you were driving along a beautiful lake somewhere, and you saw the moon shining on it, you might see a reflection on the lake of the tree line. And that tree line would be a mirror image of the trees. And that's kind of sectoral balances. It's like one person's spending is another person's income. And that's all this is. The federal government created these dollars out of thin air with a keystroke on a, on a pad based on Article One, Section 8 of the United States Constitution from a bill that was passed by Congress. Now, Let's go another step further. If you see that private debt is through the roof and people can't make payments, and if you realize that in that other sector, that the federal government, or I shouldn't say the federal government, the United States or whatever country you're in that has a currency issuing government still, when you look at where you are with a balance of payments between you and foreign countries, you're, you're basically your import-export position, and you realize that you are literally a net importer. In other words, you're bringing in goods and services, but you're sending your money out to them. 
if you understand that, now all of a sudden you realize if the federal government, which is the third sector in that, doesn't spend money into the economy, okay, you can't put any more private debt, so you can't do what Bill Clinton did, which was build the economy on private debt, and you can't build the economy based on exports because we're a net importer. That means the only way money can come in is through the federal government spending. So when you hear people talking about, oh, no, we're going into recession or something like that, right? If you think about that, it doesn't have to be that way. The federal government can do whatever it needs to do if Congress will pass those laws into being, to spend that money into existence. There is no debt to our grandchildren. That's not how this works. Taxes literally are deleted. They don't pay for anything. So you're not passing on future deficits that have piled up. You're not putting that out there. And here's a great comment. I'm just going to put this up here real quick. This is from uh, Mark Fabian. And he says, federal red ink becomes our black ink. Federal uh, discussions should never be asked how it will be paid for. Better to ask, are the resources available to buy and who will benefit from the spending? Exactly. Very good point. But if you go a little bit further, okay, if you go a little bit further and you understand ultimately the way that the media tells this stuff, it's no wonder every single person out there has a misconception of what money is. So let's just recap real quickly. Number one, the government is the monopoly issuer of the currency. The Federal Reserve is something that Congress spoke into existence in 1913. And you can sit there and read the creature from Jekyll Isle till the cows come home, because I know a lot of you are going to do that. I know that's what you do. It's spicy. It feels kind of cool, but it, it, but it's weak sauce, right? It tells you pieces of a history of how things came to be. It doesn't change the functional structure. It doesn't change the institution. It doesn't change what the purpose is. The Federal Reserve is there to clear payments. That's it. You cannot lend out reserves. The Federal Reserve creates reserves inside the banking system. And reserves are a type of money, an inner banking money. And all they do is go from reserve account to reserve account. They never leave the banking system. So you, this whole idea of fractional reserve banking is, uh, is not a lie. It's something that was used way back in the 19, you know, 20s and stuff like that. It ended when we left the, uh, the gold standard in 1934. This whole concept of fractional reserve banking left right then, okay? And I want to talk about the gold standard for a second because the gold standard is something very important to understand because you have a lot of people out there who think in terms of gold standard logic. The textbooks are written during the era where the gold standard, or at least the Bretton Woods Accord, was in place. Um, so much of the information you have out there talks about things as if we have this gold standard logic, okay? The gold standard was a, a peg. Uh, you hooked your, your currency onto this, this commodity, right? It could be the, the cotton standard if we wanted to tag it to cotton. It could be the petrol standard if we wanted to tag it to petrol, but we don't, okay? And we don't still do it to gold either, all right? But when we did, what it meant was gold had a dollar value to it. Okay. They said, eh, let's say that gold is worth a uh, dollar per ounce. I don't know. I'm just going to throw some weird numbers out there. Don't pay much attention to them. Okay. 
So now if I have a dollar, I can go to the government and say, hey, I want to redeem this dollar for a dollar of gold. And they say, okay, here you go. Here's a dollar of gold and here's your dollar or whatever. However, they did that. Maybe they give you a certificate that says you're entitled to a gold bar that's in the vault somewhere. I don't know. Whatever it was, that's how it was done. And so ultimately, the way I like to say this, now somebody's going to tear me apart because I'm not going to see this exactly right. And I'm okay with that. That's why I want people in the comment section to kind of help fill in the voids here when I'm saying things a little fast and loose. Okay. I like to say that the gold standard is like taking a pizza pie and you slice that pizza pie into eight slices. Okay. It's kind of a standard cut from the pizza shop. And each slice, let's say, is worth a dollar. Well, let's say I go ahead and decide that I'm going to slice that pizza into 16 slices. Well, this is what you typically hear with the devaluing or debasing the currency. You're printing more money against this finite pool of gold, whatever. Okay. Well, first of all, we don't do that. We're on a today, we're on a free-floating fiat regime, which means that the, the currency floats on the open market. Uh, the, the foreign exchange floats, et cetera. So meaning that it, the value can rise and fall for those investor grade people and for foreign exchange. All right. But as far as internally goes, that dollar would have been devalued if it was printed against a fixed pool of gold. If all you have is X amount of gold and we suddenly say, okay, now we're going to print more money. Well, that quote unquote devalues the currency, that debases the currency, whatever you want to call it. Okay. We don't have that anymore. So when you hear the crypto people talking about debasing the currency and printing money, number one, they're talking about that, uh, that Milton Friedman stuff I was talking about previously with quantity theory of money. And they're also talking about the fact that they think that you're printing all this money and it's going to make it worthless because the more money out there, the less it's worth. It's not true. That's not how it works at all. Not how it works. Um, so anyway, basically the gold standard, when France decided that they were going to try to force redeem all their U.S. dollar holdings into gold in the, uh, the late 60s, early 70s, Richard Nixon said, whoa, 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 we don't have enough gold to back up all that. We don't want to deal with this nonsense. So rather than let France screw with us, he went ahead and took us off the Bretton Woods Accord. And when he did that, when he took us off of the uh, Bretton Woods Accord, what he ended up doing was creating the start of what amounts to be the foundations of a lot of the modern monetary theory school of thought. 1972 was when Richard Nixon removed the Bretton Woods Accord, which was a worldwide dollar standard, basically. And the U.S. was basically a gold standard of sorts. Okay. So at that point in time, what ended up happening? Well, for a few years, not a lot happened because you had the oil crisis that with OPEC going on. And so Milton Friedman was making all of his notorious statements about quantity theory of money and printing money, creating inflation. And you had the OPEC thing going on that allowed you to really believe that it was printing money that was creating inflation. So his guy at the Fed, Volcker, what did he do? He went ahead and drove interest rates way to the moon, super, super high to try to stave off inflation. Once again, this is the monetarist view of things. 
okay? And what happens when you raise interest rates? Well, you raise the cost of things. Everything becomes more expensive. So in a sense, it staves off buying power, okay? And so what happens? People are theoretically going to stop borrowing money because it's more expensive, right? But that doesn't really happen because people still need to get things. So they end up just getting deeper and deeper into debt. They just end up in deeper and deeper in debt, all right? So ultimately, about 1976, you can start seeing the wealth gap go crazy. Not, too, not as crazy as it does in a few years later. Around 76 or so, you start seeing the divide. The wealth gap was always a little bit there. Then it starts doing this, okay? By about 1982, when Ronald Reagan had come into office, had a few years to deal with the uh, recession that he inherited from uh, Carter, the spike went like this. Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher famously started repeating the line that there's no such thing as public money. There's only taxpayer dollars, only taxpayer dollars. Well, if all you have is taxpayer dollars, then the people that are taxpayers naturally would not want to be stolen from, right? Their taxes theft, right? This is your libertarian mantra, taxes theft. Well, Reagan did a number on it, so did Margaret Thatcher. And you can see it today because many leftists, including people like Richard Wolff and others, repeat these lines ad nauseum. Ad nauseum. And so I want you to understand that this fundamental shift happened under Reagan at that point. Big fundamental shift happened in the 70s when Nixon took us off the gold standard. Another revolutionary behavior occurred when Reagan came in because they realized that deficits didn't matter. But you got to see it neocon fashion. You got to see them using military Keynesianism. You got to see them dumping money into the military to fight the Cold War. Why does this matter? Because you didn't hear anything about inflation. You didn't hear anything about that. You, we have built-in forgetters that allow us to believe that somehow or another spending billions and billions and trillions on military endeavors, somehow or another that money, when it's spent, that quantity of money doesn't create inflation. But the minute you bring up social spending, the inflation bugaboos come out, okay? And you saw that happen during this pandemic. And that's what we're experiencing today. We're living through a period of time today where they knew that the government spent money on we the people. They also knew that you and many of your friends, including Richard Wolf, who has polluted more leftists than I will ever be able to count with this false notion of taxpayer money, and ultimately destroyed, destroyed our ability to have nice things. Because when they came out of it, now all of a sudden Biden is stuck trying to reduce the deficit because there's inflation. Well, that inflation came from a number of things, right? Because ultimately the money is just paper. It's just a representation. What really is valuable? It's the real resources. Having access to the real resource, having productive capacity for things that we want to purchase. 
okay? Things that we need. And if they're not there, then it doesn't matter how much money you print, as they say, you can't get it. You could look at Weimar Germany. This is one of the favorite boogeymen, right? In Weimar, what did you have? You had a horrible, brutal war. You had the Treaty of Versailles that was nothing but revenge, vengeance served up in an economic uh, platform. And then ultimately you had a strike in the industrial sector in Germany, in Weimar. So you didn't have productive capacity and you had incredibly heavy debts payable in French francs, a foreign currency that was not Germany's natural currency to spend. And France loves doing this, don't they? Historically, they do this stuff. So if you think about what I'm saying to you here, right? Weimar Germany had nothing to do with printing money. It had everything to do with a lack of available resources, crushing, crushing penalties from the Treaty of Versailles, and ultimately massive amounts of foreign denominated debt. Because one of the things that MMT teaches us is that a nation that issues its own currency can never go broke on debt denominated in its own currency. Think about it. Anything that is for sale in U.S. dollars can be purchased with U.S. dollars, whether or not you have faith in the dollar or not. Think about what I just said. So I want you to take a step back. Let's go down momentarily to Zimbabwe. Famous, famous hyperinflation story, right? You always hear the guys and gals talking about, yeah, MMT thing, just get us hyperinflation. Well, what happened in Zimbabwe? Let's, let's talk about this for a minute. This is a great case study of not MMT, or maybe it is MMT. You'll understand why in a second. So Mugabe, who was the head of Zimbabwe at the time, took away all the land from the colonizers who were farmers. And they were good farmers, even though they were colonizers. And Zimbabwe was a food sovereign. They had plenty of food at the time. But when uh, Mugabe took away the farms, the Brits who owned those farms torched them. They just said, fuck you, man, and torched them. So all of a sudden, the food was gone. And the new farmers had been warriors. They hadn't been farmers. So what did they do? They had hyperinflation because it didn't matter how much money you printed, you couldn't buy food that wasn't there. Their productive capacity was kaput, right? Pretty, pretty interesting stuff there, right? And what do you hear about Venezuela? Let's go to Venezuela momentarily. Venezuela has a couple things really horribly bad going for it. Number one, of course, the top one is the U.S. involvement with the CIA, destabilizing and corruption, et cetera. That's number one. But let's get into other things. Number two, they are a crude producing nation. They are not a refinery. So they produce a lot of crude. Well, who else produces a lot of crude? Just about everybody. You got Russia, you've got uh, Saudi Arabia, you got the US, you've got the OPEC nations as a whole that literally produce crude. And they have the power to drop the price of crude tremendously. And when they drop the price of crude, that was how Venezuela or our, yeah, Venezuela was able to pay their bills was through their uh, exports, through exporting crude. Well, they also 
had pegged their peso or their currency, if you will, to the U.S. dollar. So now the U.S. dollar is, it's a peg. It's like tying it to gold. Well, they tied it to the U.S. dollar. Now, once you tie yourself to the U.S. dollar, you're at the mercy of that. You've got to have reserves, meaning you've got to have cash on hand, U.S. dollars on hand to handle any of those exchanges because you are backed against that. That's why Putin went out and got a whole shit ton of gold also, part of it anyway, okay? You got to have those reserves. He has gold reserves. They had U.S. dollar reserves, okay? And when you get those reserves, you can be fucked with. The, the, the value of those things floating on the open market can really, really fuck a nation like Venezuela, okay? So ultimately, they had a single export economy with lots of corruption and a peg to a foreign currency with foreign debt. Foreign debt, foreign denominated debt, similar to Weimar. You have a situation like that, you're going to end up with hyperinflation. You are. You can see it with the Confederacy too, ironically, in the United States during the Civil War. The Confederacy could not enforce a tax. They had this whole voluntary thing, way to go libertarians, you cost yourselves a war, right? And so what did they do? They had hyperinflation in the South. The Confederacy went belly up and therefore lost what would have been a close war. Thank God for so many reasons. Okay. But regardless, the point was, is that the tax, the obligation to pay a tax is what is a core MMT principle. Now, it doesn't have to be a tax. Think about this. Fines, fees, and penalties and other things like that that are denominated in U.S. dollars and have to be paid in U.S. dollars serve as a driver, a need for that currency as well. So let's, let's take a moment to think about what I've said. The United States government can buy anything it needs from healthcare to green energy, to bombs, uh, to eradicating student debt, you name it, anything, anything that is for sale in U.S. dollars, it can purchase in U.S. dollars. This is why dollar hegemony has its privileges. This is why the U.S. dollar being the world reserve currency gives it special treatment because it can buy anything for sale in U.S. dollars. And as long as they accept dollars there, then you can get your imports and stuff like that at a rate that is keeps things down. The high cost of low prices, right? We're raping the global south with this model. Now, if the U.S. dollar was no longer the world reserve currency or had lost its place as the preeminent, because there's a basket of world reserve currencies, there's a lot of them, the euro, the yen, there's a ton of them. So don't get wrapped up in the U.S. dollar in this case. The difference is the U.S. dollar is ubiquitously accepted around the globe. And so it gives it special privileges. Okay, special privileges as it pertains to trade. But if they cut that off, if that changed, what might happen? Well, you'd see manufacturing come home. That's not necessarily good or bad, okay? Because as Warren Mosler would tell you, exports are a cost, imports are a benefit. Why is that? Because you're trading pieces of paper for real goods and services. So this is the, the accounting truths. However, during this pandemic, what did we learn? 
I give you an accounting truth that's real. That's a real truth. But let me give you a supply chain truth. When you manufacture things around the world instead of at home and you have a pandemic and you have breaks in your supply chain, you've found a weakness. You've found an area of your economy that could suffer mightily. So if you consider what I'm saying here, yes, exports are a cost. Imports are a net benefit. But it brings to mind something else too. When you produce goods and services in your own backyard, what do you do with the waste? What do you do with the trash? What do you do with the pollution that you create? So all of a sudden, now you've got a new set of things you've got to consider. So ultimately, you look at uh, Social Security. We're going to go to that right now. I'm going to jump to it because I'm running out of time. I wish I had hours to spend. I could do this over and over, and I love doing this. It's super important. But you look at something like Social Security. Social Security is what we call a numeraire, basically. You've got this representation on that piece of paper that you get every year that says how much you paid into Social Security. Yep. I, I paid 5,000 last year into Social Security. Oh, I made this much in Social Security. And so what they did was when they wrote the Social Security law, they wrote it in that this trust fund had authority, payment authority, okay? But it doesn't actually have anything to do with whether or not the fund is actually funding it, okay? The United States government funds every dollar of, of Social Security. So the idea of raising FICA taxes up to make you pay so Social Security doesn't go broke is a joke. We could literally change the law, get rid of this whole trust fund thing, and literally spend that money right into existence like we do anyway, without the cap. But because we created this trust fund, and the reason why we did it was because FDR figured that if you believe that you were paying into it, if you believe you had skin in the game, that somehow or another it wouldn't go away. So he, on one hand, used this great political tool to try and help. On the backhand, it later became an albatross because now we can't shake the idea. We can't make people realize that the Republicans did not raid the Social Security Trust Fund. It's a spreadsheet. It's little more than a spreadsheet with a piece of paper that says you have authority to validate payments to whatever. So ultimately, once again, the United States government can pay anything at once. It could pay anything at once. It can do anything at once. It is the money monopolist. It's the uh, price setter, et cetera. Now, I told you guys that I was going to give you some resources. There's more to MMT than what I just gave you, okay? But the big takeaway is taxes do not fund spending at the federal level. States and municipal governments absolutely must tax to spend. And as a result of the fact that they are a currency user, whereas the federal government is a currency issuer, they have very different constraints like you and I do. We're not dependent on the rich, but the states are because we have to tax to spend at the state level. So when we put burdens on the state, when we put big programs on the state, the state must find those revenues or they can go belly up. You see places like Detroit that went into receivership, went bankrupt. And all of a sudden they sold off all their memories, all their historical assets, all the, 
great stuff from the museums, et cetera. You look at Flint, Michigan. Why isn't the, aren't the pipes fixed? Well, because once again, Flint is not a currency issuer. It's a currency user. And what happens when jobs leave places like Flint and Detroit? They go down to Texas for the low tax haven. The race to the bottom begins with each state cutting taxes lower and lower. And what happens when a state that has to have taxes to pay for programs cuts taxes? Well, those programs get cut too, right? This is the problem with your state-based approaches to healthcare. This is the reason why people that are pushing that are naive at best. I think, quite frankly, that they're on somebody's payroll, which is why they're pushing this. But I can't prove that. So I'll take that back. Redact that, right? They're very naive. And unfortunately, they've got help. There's people out there that know better, that won't do better, that are fueling their ideas and pushing this forward. And it's a shame because it's killing us. But you think about this. We have a lot of resources out there, and I'm going to share them with you right now, some of them anyway. So forgive me, because some of these things, it's going to be tough to get them all in, but I'm going to give it a shot. So I'll put these links inside the description of the video to help you. So here we go. So this is Randall Ray that I'm about to show with share with you, okay? And I love this, because he said this at um, the MMT conference in uh, New York City at the New School. And I'm, I'm going to skip. You can look through this. But this is really important because what he does is he breaks out down here. There's 10 things that he includes when he says what MMT is. And here his first one, what is money? An IOU denominated in a socially sanctioned money of account. Unit of account is what I said. He says money of account. In almost all known cases, it is the authority, the state that chooses the money of account. This comes from Knapp, Friedrich Knapp, otherwise known as State Theory of Money, Ennis, Keynes, Jeff Ingram, and Hyman Minsky. The second thing he brings up is, highlight this, taxes or other obligations, fees, fines, tribute, tithes, drive the currency. I said that earlier. The ability to impose such obligations is an important aspect of sovereignty. Today's states alone monopolize this power. This comes from Knapp, Ennis, Minsky, and Mosler. Warren Mosler, very good friend and largely considered the father of modern monetary theory. The next one, number three. Oh, anyone can issue money. The problem is to get it accepted. Anyone can write an IOU denominated in the recognized money of account, but acceptance can be hard to get unless you have the state backing you up. Once again, this is Hyman Minsky. The word redemption, oh, let's go and do this again. The word redemption is used in two ways, accepting your own IOUs in payment and promising to convert your IOUs to something else such as gold, foreign currency, or the state's IOUs. The first is fundamental and true of all IOUs. All our gold bugs mistakenly focus on the second meaning, which does not apply to currencies issued by most modern nations, and indeed does not apply to most of the currencies issued throughout history. This comes from Innocent Knapp and is reinforced by Hudson and Grubb's work, as well as by Margaret Atwood's great book, Payback, Debt and Shadow Side of Wealth. Number five, this is very important. 
Sovereign debt is different. There is no chance of involuntary default so long as the state only promises to accept its currency in payment. It could voluntarily repudiate its debt, but this is rare and has not been done by any modern sovereign nation. Number six, functional finance. Finance should be functional to achieve the public purpose, not sound to achieve some arbitrary balance between spending and revenues. Most importantly, monetary and fiscal policy should be formulated to achieve full employment with price stability. This is credited to Abba Lerner, who was introduced to MMT by Matt Forstater. We'll skip some of that. Get on to seven. For that reason, the job guarantee is a critical component of MMT. It anchors the currency and ensures that achieving full employment will enhance both price and financial stability. This comes from Minsky's earliest work on the employer of last resort, ELR, from Bill Mitchell's work on buffer stocks, and from Warren Mosler's work on monopoly price setting. And also for that reason, we need Minsky's analysis of financial instability. Here, I don't really mean the financial instability hypothesis. Some of this stuff is really heady, so I'm going to skip some of this. Uh, number nine is the government's debt is our financial asset. That right there, my friends, is that sectoral balances. Here, let me let me bring that back momentarily. Um, see if I can do this momentarily. And if I bring this over to the picture again, this right here is what he's talking about there. Okay, this is the uh, the sectoral balances. So let's go ahead and bring this back up. And the government's debt is our financial asset, two sides of the same ledger, right? Number 10 is rejection of typical view of the central bank as independent and potent. Monetary policy is weak and its impact is at best uncertain. And I'm going to touch on this right now. I'm going to go ahead and stop sharing the screen momentarily and just explain this to you. So many people are focused on the Federal Reserve. It doesn't do anything meaningful, right? What it does is it adjusts interest rates. It does do some shady shit. There's no question, but it's neoliberal shit that's been sanctioned. Congress has the power to author or to regulate the central bank because it created into existence. This whole idea of independence is more of a, it's more of a gentleman's agreement than it is anything else. And it's really to try to quote unquote, keep politics out of monetary policy. Anyway, so I'm going to show you one more thing here. And this hopefully will help you out as well. These are our podcasts. Now, there's a lot more to this. I've got like 10 other uh, links over here that I would like very much to show you. But instead, I'm going to show you our podcast. That's my ugly mug right there. Okay. And if you go down here, we have a lot of really, really fantastic experts that you can listen to. I release a podcast every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. I'm showing you this, but I'm going to go ahead and show you how many we have. This is kind of insane when you look at this. We just released 168 episodes last weekend. We're going on 169, which will be part two of a history lesson on Mao. Um, but this goes all the way back. We have so many. Finding Mosler with Philip Armstrong, who's a UK economist. Bullshit jobs with Eric Dean. The intersection of Marx and MMT with one dime, War and Peace, Ukraine. I mean, on and on and on. We have the greatest people Warren Moser, Stephen Hale, Bill Mitchell, Steve Keen, Phil Lawn, Stuart uh, Miltimore, uh, Fadal Kaboob. Uh, we've had so, Devarian Baldwin, uh, Michael Albert, who is an uh, anarchist, Parag Khanna, who is a cartologist, Dirk Entz, who's a German economist, Robert Hockett, who has advised 
all of the squad on types of things like MMT and so forth. Uh, Rana, who is uh, Fadel's wife. Then we got with Jamie Skillen. I don't want to skip him. He talks about the neoliberal push to take over public lands. Scott Fulweiler, who's one of the geniuses. John Harvey, who teaches at TCU. Even the head of the uh, Congressional Budget Committee, Chairman John and his son, Aaron Yarmouth. I mean, I've got so many. Jason Hickel, who's a genius. Malcolm Revel, who's from Scotland. Scott Ferguson, who is a uh, from the Humanities Division of the Modern Money Network. Of course, you know, Jordan Sheraton, we were talking about the Flint water crisis. We've got organizing for power. We've got uh, fraud and corruption, geopolitics of the Russian Revolution, the Haitian Revolution. Folks, I have covered so much stuff over this time period, and they're all the kind of thing that if you take the time to listen to these, they're about an hour each. Steve Keen, Mike Figueredo, Jen Perlman, eh, We've gone through so many of Brian Romanchuk for Bonds, Marco Cantaneo from Italy, uh, Richard Bowen, uh, who was the whistleblower during the um, Countrywide, Eric Tamoyne, who talks about money and banking, Tom Fozzi, uh, who wrote, co-wrote the book Reclaiming the State with Bill Mitchell, Dan Kavalik, uh, uh, so many, so many. Lin, Linwood Toheed, who is an institutionalist. I mean, so many of them, folks. So. Please check out the podcast, Macro and Cheese. We try to have as much, and we try to build more than just an MMT straight line. We're trying to tie it together so you see the larger picture, the, the aesthetics, the history, all the other socioeconomic aspects of modern monetary theory. We try to bring together. It's not just a straight line. You don't want to just learn basic accounting. Although that's part of it, it's not really the thing that should matter to an activist. An activist needs to be able to debunk politicians when they lie to you. You need to be able to listen to the news with a different lens. You need to be able to process the information. Then you need to be able to talk to people. You need to be able to share that information. I'm hoping that's what these podcasts do. I'm hoping that's what these rogue scholar uh, things do. And with that, I have to bid you adieu and get my butt back to work. So with that, folks, please become a monthly donor. Please check out our work. Please check out our website, realprogressives.org. Please check out all the other links and stuff on our webpage. It's amazing. We've invested thousands of dollars, thousands of human hours in trying to make these things perfect. I want to give a big shout out to our top donor, Catherine Class, who once again, Dee Nord, who went ahead and gave us a nice super chat. We have so many people that I want to thank. We are a nonprofit, so your donations to Real Progressives are a 501c3, so that means they're tax deductible. Your donations to Real Progress in Action, which is a, a pack, basically. It's really like our revolution, okay? Although it's very, very, very anemic right now. We need your help to build chapters, folks. We need your help, okay? That's a 501c4. So we've got a 501c3 to teach. We've got a 501c4 to organize. And with that, I'm Steve Grumbine, and I am going to be out of here, folks. Out of here like you wouldn't believe. And three, two, one. The Rogue Scholar is a production of Real Progressives. If you would like to support our work, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressives.